From the Sydney Opera House, this is It's a Long Story, a podcast that goes deep into the stories behind some of our biggest thinkers. I'm Edwina Throsby. When 24-year-old Zadie Smith published her debut novel, White Teeth, in 2000, she became an instant literary superstar. Two decades and several more novels, short story and essay collections later, her voice remains every bit as relevant. Never one to follow a trend, her writing has earned a reputation for originality and intellectual independence. I spoke to Zadie Smith when she was visiting the Sydney Opera House in November 2019. Zadie Smith, welcome to It's a Long Story. Thank you. Good to be here. A lot of your work uh, and your writing over the years deals with human interactions with the broader culture. So, you know, I'm thinking in your first book, White Teeth, Irie developed something of an obsession with Englishness. And in your most recent book, in the story Downtown, um, you know, the narrator recognises that her child is becoming American because because her child refuses to believe that rich people can be batshit crazy. <laughs> this writing about culture, I think, kind of interrogates the role of race and class and nationality. So as an English woman with a Jamaican mother who now lives in the United States, what do you think makes someone of a place? Well, I always think about culture as attachment. Like, I don't believe it runs through the veins or through the blood it's about interest and, and concern. So um, my Britishness, whatever it amounted to when I was a kid, was willed, you know, I, I willed it into existence. And, and my New York affection is likewise willed. But, but I like to think of it as choice, yeah. Familiarity is a part of it. The longer mm. I spent in New York, the more it's seeped into me one way or another. Um, I was just thinking the dynamism in New York culture, the... You know, whenever we come back from a summer, half the things that we used to see have gone. And that's that feels normal in New York. But as, even as I say, I know that's very strange, right? To live in a town where every six months half the shops close <laughs> and are replaced by other ones and half the people leave and are replaced by other people. So it's a, it's a strange way to live, but uh, it is really stimulating. How do you think that influences what living in New York is like? It's not very nostalgic to live in New York. I mean, you can get nostalgic, but you become an awful bore if you spend your time saying, oh, this used to be, See, oh, I this mean, used to be. I feel, like, I feel like New Yorkers spend all their lives talking about how good New York used to be. Right, they do, and there's like, it happens in smaller and smaller increments. So it used to be kind of decade-wise, but now you find people waxing sentimental about 2012. <laughs> um, I do that too, I do that too. That's part of New York life. And there's always someone who can trump you. There's always someone who's, who knew the 70s or knew the 50s, you know, etc. Do you have a deeper sense of belonging in various places? Um, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, not really. I don't, I think of a writer as in some way a nomad. Like I'm, when I'm in Wilsdon, obviously that's a place which has layers and layers of memory for me. But as I've got older, to be honest, home is my, is my people, my family, people I love, my brothers, my husband, my kids, my mother. That's how I define it now. It's interesting that you foreground family in that because that can be constant or it can change. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about the family that you were born into? The family I was born into uh, was, uh, I guess, a bit peculiar from the outside. It was, a, uh, you know, there's a kind of echo in it white, in white teeth. There's a very old white man from England and a very young black Jamaican woman. Um, 
but that kind of I think that uh, obscures things they they had in common, primarily class. You know, they were both from nowhere, whatever that means. <laughs> but the English say it. They were both from nowhere, and they had nothing. Um, and then they raised us in northwest London, which was full of uh, people like that. You know, people in similar situations who'd come from nowhere and had very little. Um, but were also surrounded by, you know, longer standing middle class residents. So it was a very interesting, a very interesting way to grow up. How did they meet? I don't. I mean, I've overlaid it so many times in fiction that the truth is very hard for me to get out. I believe my half sister told me that she had met my mother. They were the same age. And my father came to pick up his daughter from some event. I met my mother there. So, yeah, kind of hashtag me too story yeah, is right. how I began. <laughs> <laughs> how did they negotiate the age difference in their relationship? Um, I don't think, I, I don't, they didn't negotiate. It was just a terrible marriage from the, from day one. That They just ha- hated each other. <laughs> that, that will always make up for a bad marriage. But I, I think for my mother's case, it was quite pragmatic. She w- was looking for a home, just a father and a home and to get out of her own family. That, that's a very, like, I suppose young women listening to that can't imagine that as a reason for marriage, but that's a reason going back thousands of years. And, I mean, there are things that limit your choices when you're a right. young woman, um, you know, from an immigrant family. You know, yes. the, the, your options aren't expansive. No, she wasn't. I don't think she was thinking of romance. She was thinking of uh, survival. Uh, you have said in the past that, um, that your childhood home was full of yelling. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Enormous amount of yelling, yes. How did you respond to that? Um, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I suppose it, it's clear from me and my brothers that that we were, I suppose, in some way traumatised. We all went into, my brother's a comedian, which is no surer sign of a trauma <laughs> than a stand-up comedian. Does um, he mine his childhood for material? Uh, yes, yes, and uh, we all do, I think. But it's hard to talk about because trauma is bad, but it's also, of course... There are there are uses of trauma, you know, and the use for us was a, a world that we created that was ours, which involves music and TV, enormous amounts of TV and reading. Um, we, my brother and I, my little brother came along later, but me and Ben were very, very occupied in avoiding reality. That's the best way I can put it. So what were your go-tos? What were you watching and what were you uh, reading? We had very elaborate fictional games. We memorised movies. There was a point in our childhood where we knew every word to uh, Peter Pan, the Disney the Disney movie Peter Pan. So we could, it must have been very young, like 10 and 8, and we could just sit together and um, do the whole movie. That That is a very, uh, for me, a very formative memory. And also Peter Pan itself is about mm. escaping mm. sadness and escaping adults. And a lot of artists, like people like Robert Crumb, have obsession with that movie. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very... Um, it's a very strange movie. And then, of course, the movie itself, like a lot of things my, we were obsessed with, is explicitly racist. So a lot, a lot of the stuff you would watch, you'd love it, and then you'd have, you'd have suddenly in the middle of these movies this thing would happen. It's so hard to imagine now where there's so much culture you can go to. But in those days, there was nothing. You used to try and spot brown people in things. You, you would know. literally do that? Yeah, and in my family, if the brown person came on television, everybody would start shouting, Ah, come in! <laughs> And we'd stand and look at this person, and you had to accept, um, 
you had to accept what you were given in a certain degree, you know, or you had to bracket it. So people like Lenny Henry, who was a huge star in England, he's written an amazing memoir right now about his own self-hatred because the stuff he was doing on British television when I was a kid was self-hating and racist and extremely depressing. On the other hand, all we had was Lenny mm. and Lenny was our hero. So you'd watch it and then he'd do something that you found painful and it was a kind of, you grew up trying to accommodate these things, you know, trying to say, well, Lenny has to do it. You knew that. Lenny's the only black guy on television and this is what he has to do. In order to be palatable. Right. mm. So you didn't condemn him, but it was painful. It was always painful. The um, Indians, as they were called in Peter Pan, that was painful. It was always painful. But your whole way of approaching culture was like taking what you could use and and avoiding what you couldn't, you know. And also maybe developing a kind of critical lens for that. Yes. I mean, the thing I remember, particularly about television watching as a family, was uh, you'd be having a great time. And in those days in England, everybody watched the same two or three channels and everybody watched the same shows at the same time. So you'd be watching the two Ronnies, for example, hilarious comedy, Mm. and everyone in England is laughing and we're laughing. And then suddenly we're not laughing, you know, Mm. because the joke's about us. Where was your white father in this? Was he with with you all? Or It's hard to explain to people, but you, you can't find strange a reality you're born into. Um, I don't... I mean, my father's dead now. It's half... Like, now, in retrospect, I am struck because I know now that he had done this extraordinary thing, marrying this very young Jamaican woman. I mean, it's, it's hard to describe the, the age gaps, right? So my grandmother was a borderline Victorian, you know, mm. who had worked as a maid in a great house in Suffolk. But yeah, going to see my grandmother in Brighton, I mean, God knows what she made of it, but she was incredibly sweet and friendly to us, you know, and kind. But it must have been a hell of a thing. <laughs> this is like 1978. Yeah. Um, it's interesting when you're talking about just not seeing yourselves at all um, in any movies or television, um, but you had music. Yes, we had music and we had American culture. So my mother was very clever at showing us, particularly as I got older, black American literature, which existed. And also there was slightly different alignments in England in the 80s. So we thought of ourselves like black and Asian was our political concept and our category. Mm. So all the writing of the South Asian diaspora was what I grew up with and considered in some way us. Mm-hmm. That's how we thought of ourselves then, black and Asian in a in a white context. And that wasn't just coming out of um, the literature and stuff that you were consuming. That was also coming out of your community, right? Yeah, it was a political mm. arrangement. And mm. like the famous movements in my neighbourhood, there was an enormous Asian women's strike in northwest London, a big factory strike. And that was supported by uh, Marxists, socialists, Jewish community, the, re- the Afro-Caribbean community. So there was a kind of series of political allegiances mm. that they weren't always perfect. And obviously, you know, there were breaks in it all the time. But the general feeling was of solidarity. So I spent a lot of my childhood at, at you know, anti-apartheid events. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of that. And at those anti-apartheid events, my memory was always of, you know, comradeship with Jewish socialists, with Asian women's collectives, um, with the kind of beginnings of gay movements. It, it was a, it was an interesting time in, in that sense. The solidarity of otherness. Yeah, it, it was, it was felt good to be, it was a very broad church and you helped each other's protests. 
Were you taken to those protests by your family or did you go yeah, independently? Both. Yeah, no, we all, I, no, I certainly didn't want to go. I wanted to sit at home and watch television. I was nine <laughs> years old. No, we all went and, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, my family were, I mean, leftists by instincts, particularly my father's case, his identity, his, his knowledge of himself was from the working classes, you know. The word Tory in my house was like a curse. He spit on the floor. <laughs> and it was a time of Thatcher, so we were living. Uh, this woman who was trying to, as far as we could see in our childish way, destroy our lives, you know, um, from taking away our milk to taking away our rights to our form of our education. That's right, Margaret Thatcher milk snatcher. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it, was a very, it felt like a very direct threat. Um, but at the same time, I, my parents were certainly... Um, aspirational like my father really wanted to be part of a kind of bohemian intellectual class that would have been his dream but it was stimmied by the fact that he had never gone to school <laughs> so he couldn't really get to that place that he was interested in but he was something of an autodidact I think so certainly the things he was concerned with interested in um he had very sophisticated tastes in certain things comedy food he's really a great cook um he's really interested in Europe like that, it's funny in English culture now, that kind of working class guy, you don't hear much from, right? The idea is that it's always a populist, rightist guy. But my father was not unusual in our neighbourhood. I mean, a lot of those people he was interested in being around would have been Irish. Mm, I was going to say, yeah. I think that that's much more common in right. Ireland, isn't Southern it? Irish people who mm. had an interest in, in music, in poetry, mm -hmm. in art generally. And a lot of our my parents' friends were young Irish people. Mm-hmm. Um, you say your father's aspirational, and um, and I imagine that that kind of aspiration was conveyed to you. When you were going through school, did you have in mind that the goal of school was to, you know, get to Oxbridge, or was that something that developed? The goal of school was to get out of Wilsdon. <laughs> that was the main goal of school. Or, But I also, I mean, I, I did love school for itself, and I am... I, um, I was I was incredibly fortunate in schools. Like I went to these state schools that were just so wonderful, and, and in no way were they wonderful on paper. Like I know if you were if it was these days and you were looking them up on whatever school website, I know parents now and the idea that fifty percent of kids get between an A and an F that doesn't impress any parent these days. But those figures obscured what was going on, which was a, a kind of hardcore group of middle class parents who had socialist principles pretty much put their kids into these schools the rest of us were just assigned to these schools and that mix um, was incredibly useful for everybody on both sides we got to see a different kind of life um, a lot of those parents were teachers or social workers or had these kind of jobs that were educated but significant in the community and they got to see our lives and know that you know, there's a different... Not everyone lives in a house. Not everyone has kids who go to university. Uh, not everyone eats the food you eat. Not everyone has the faith you have. It was a, It was just very enlivening for all of us, I think. I worry for the public education system in, in all of our countries because, right. because you see people, you know, wanting to take themselves out of comprehensive and public right. schools which which are underfunded but yeah. but still if they had that kind of community investment would 
presumably provide those same yeah, sorts I mean, if, of... If all the middle-class people stayed, there wouldn't right. be no problem. But it's not... You know, the, the whole argument is calibrated in this way of why would I sacrifice my child to principal? It, I really don't think of those schools like that. Like I knew the private school kids. I know them now. And I know what they gained. So no doubt it's great to have Latin, probably, and to learn <laughs> Greek. And it's great that they're good at math. But you have to have a broader sense of what a life is for. And I'm not being provocative saying I genuinely saw an enormous amount of emotional damage in those private schools that I personally am glad I wasn't involved with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw in the school I, I was in, it's not perfect. I didn't learn Latin and Greek and my math is no better than a five-year-old. But like the endings of the kids in our school are, are all extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Like it, People went and did all kinds of things in all kinds of places and it's a tribute to that, the feeling of possibility that was there. Like the things that I that I gained from it have been useful to me my entire, my entire life. I imagine though that when you then went to Cambridge, you were surrounded by the future bankers and lawyers of the of the private school. Um, I mean, I think the thing which struck me is that I, I thought I knew posh people. <laughs> people I was at school with, I considered them posh. And then I, when I got to Cambridge, it became clear that I had known, at best, middle-class people. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't have any idea what posh <laughs> people were or what kind of backgrounds they came from, what their schools came from. But it, again, to me, it was all interesting. Like, I found them incredibly exotic and strange and like something out of a novel like the novels I'd been reading I hadn't realized it it was continuing that this still like what I don't children of aristocrats the children whose their struggle was that they you know four generations of their family had gone to this place and boys who knew nothing about women and were terrified of them and you know I I I guess my natural instinct is not to I don't kind of place myself in these situations as as, as a person uh, with less power. I don't think of it that way. I just think, how curious. Mm. I'm kind of, I'm, I was curious about all of them. It's kind of amazing. I, certainly when I started university, I was constantly putting myself in relation to other people and figuring out where I, where I fit. I did do that, but I, I think the thing which is kind of unsaid, in, at least in the 90s when I went, it's, it's true that we were isolated. There were, hard, there were so few black people on campus. But it's also true that we were Londoners and that had a great deal of cachet, if I'm honest, in the 90s in Cambridge because the posh people were filled with self-hatred and loathing, (laughs) right? It was that period where it wasn't cool to be... Now it's become, for some reason, incredibly cool to be rich and posh again in England. But in the 90s, it was not cool. And they spent their entire time pretending not to be what they were. So everyone suddenly had these flat estuary accents. Nobody would tell you exactly where they came from or they wouldn't describe their houses. They'd disguise their last name. So the the London kids amongst us who were mostly black, Asian, Jewish kids, you know, we were certainly in a minority and sometimes we were made to feel like idiots, certainly. But I think we had a sense of ourselves as cool, Mm. cooler than these kids. Mm. And, I mean, you know, it was also (laughs) your people that were creating the popular culture at this point too, right? that's really, like, every weekend we go back to London to go to the Blue Note and it was, you know, Blur were there and Bjork and Goldie and jungle music was everywhere. Mm. And 
I, I felt at the center of something and I and I really thought this other England the one we came across in Cambridge was kind of comic and and dying that's the kind of way we thought about it completely wrong of course <laughs> couldn't have been more wrong but at the time I just thought well it was nice that you had England but now that's all over now <laughs> oh god I mean I feel like every every generation feels like there's something dying out and then right. we're always wrong always wrong one of the other things that was happening on university campuses in the 90s was this sort of real privileging of subjectivity. You see, or, I think I missed because I was in a college obsessed with French theory. So uh, we were we were all in the Derrida camp in which... Uh, you killed the... Yeah, we killed people. Mm. There was no people. There was only text. There was only language. Right. Um, How freeing. Yeah, it was freeing, but also we had a sense of... You know, I, I felt it heavily because... I, I was in the wrong generation, if you see what I mean. I was a post-war child. My father was at Belson. I was that was my legacy, mm. and the kind of the French philosophy of the sixties and seventies, which were, what we were reading, was responding to the idea that the individual, the bloated individual who thinks of himself as the centre of the world, is uh, a fascist. You know, mm. that that is a that is a nightmare. That vision, um, and that's what French theory gave to me as a sense that this kind of over-elaborated, you know, 20th century subject um, is to be feared because they fill themselves with power and then they cause this apocalypse. Like, to me, the Holocaust was the central fact of my consciousness, you know, that this had occurred, that this had happened. Although the flip side of that is that I think that there was a recognition at around the same time that that sort of bloated centre of the world person was yeah, inevitably a white man. Right. So in order to say, you know, I am not a white man, that was an important kind of acknowledgement of... Absolutely. All border voices came forward and I, I was a part of that. But what I did not want to do is use the t tools of the centre and the tools of the centre are the tools of um, subject position, as in my subject position guarantees me various things. And to me, my subject position is my reality. I experience it every day. I'm a black British woman. But if I'm writing an argument, um, it can be a factor. It's a part of the rhetorical argument. But what matters more to me is that I that the logic is there. Mm. My argument has to exist separately from my subject identity, or at least my subject identity doesn't make it true. I mean, the, other, the thing which was removed from my education was the idea that the personal, the emotional, had some place to, to be. And when I got out of academia and came to writing, that, that was the freedom to be... Because in my supervisions in Cambridge, the idea that I would ever say what I felt about the books we were reading was... I mean, it just didn't... <laughs> it wasn't a concept... It wasn't a concept. If I said to my... But what then those I, novels? Uh, you know, it's all very... It's what they assigned. And what they assigned was the canon as it was then understood, 300 years of uh, Western literature. And even to say Western literature is to um, glorify it because what they really meant was English, mm -hmm. specifically English <laughs> literature with a bit of Ireland. Um, no Americans. Americans were considered very declassé, not to be taken seriously. And even things like... Nabokov, who I wanted to write a dissertation on, I was told, well, he's a little bit newfangled. It's like 1997. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> so it was very hidebound. Um, and I suppose young people listen to this and be like, how could you bear to read all those books that had nothing to do with you and which were so old? Um, 
but I I have felt throughout my career that uh, in order to try and be new, it very much helps to know what happened before. Mm. And and it, doing that degree disabused me of the idea that things I was doing were new. Like you'd read Tristram Shandy, you'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> or you'd read Ulysses, you'd be like, oh, okay. And you found out over and over again that things you thought were radical had been done mm. 80 years ago or 300 years ago. Mm. So that was useful. And then... I mean, of course, it would have been very good for my mental health to have read Caribbean literature, Asian literature, diaspora literature generally. And there was lots of ways in which I think my mental health suffered during those three years. But now that it's all over, um, all all the other reading I did myself, you know. And by the time I got to it, I had the tools to do it. And there was a great joy in reading it outside of an academic context, reading it for pleasure. Mm. So I had no idea of the personal as a critical voice. When I came into fiction, I realized that was allowable again. And the way I teach is to allow that again, because, of course, the reader is not just a brain in a bottle, and it's not just text. There is lived experience, there is contingency, there is your subject position. All of these things are in a quadrant that creates the interpretation. But my argument is that one of these things is not triumphant over the others. It's not the knockdown blow to say well, it happened to me, or I felt this, so end of discussion. Mm. No, not end of discussion. Mm. Never end of discussion. No, there are, there, there are objective facts. Still. Right, <laughs> there are. <laughs> when you were kind of coming out to the end of your university time, um, you were approached by a publisher yeah. and, and White Teeth was written. How, yeah. how did that come about? I mean, you know, that's, <laughs> I don't know, that's where my life got a bit surreal. I can't really explain it. I don't, I was doing my exams and uh, I got this letter from a publisher who read a short thing of mine in, in these May anthologies we used to publish. And, and he, he, my memory is he asked, Are you, is there anything longer? Hmm. And I thought, well, is there anything longer? And I, I had a story I'd been working on. And I just found myself in a fever, you know, continuing to write it. And it was somehow I'd failed my part one exams very badly. I have realized about myself that somehow the more work I have to do, the more pressure, the better things go. That, mm. That's one way to put it. So and you failed because you didn't put the work in. I, yeah, I think <laughs> the more work there is for me, the better it is. And something about trying to write this longer story helped. I mean, but the most important thing to me was to, to pass those finals. I was obsessed with them. I was working very hard to get through them. I was reading a lot of books, reading a lot of criticism and writing White Teeth at the same time. And it all if you look at White Teeth now, it's full of novels that I was reading. You know, it's it's kind of like mm. an undergraduate literature degree turned inside out and made into <laughs> fiction. So White Teeth came out in 2000 and you were suddenly famous. Mm. Um, and it was a particular type of fame as well, because it felt that you were being asked to carry an awful lot. Um, you know, you were being asked to be representational of an awful lot, a sort of generational totem. Um, yeah. What was, I mean, from from the inside, what was that like? Was it thrilling? Was it exciting? Was it terrifying? Um, it was not, we know, it was not great. <laughs> I don't mean to sound ungrateful, but it wasn't great. And I, when I think, when I look back, I don't often, but someone sent me recently, like, early interviews, like, you wouldn't believe what people said to me in those interviews. I would. I've been watching them. It's, it's, it's just astonishing. And I was too young to be... 
I mean, I would take it on board, but now that I'm 44, I just think how that was so wrong. Also because I was so innocent, so I thought any adult I was talking to about books was basically like my tutors and my teachers. Mm. So when I went to these interviews and thought, oh, we're going to talk about books, and then I realised, it took me years to realise, first of all, I'm dealing with a journalist who is not that much older than me and hates me, mm. <laughs> hates everything about what's just <laughs> happened. They would call me Zay, like I had no last name, mm. Zadie, or they'd say, the paragraphs would always begin, can you believe this girl from this shitty suburb knows anything it was extraordinary and then if you if you were anything but nice and genial then it was she seems very angry <laughs> angry there was a long article my mum sent me in the daily mail about i wish i could find it now but it was about angry young black artists in britain so i think naomi campbell me there was a list of us Right. It's like 1998. And you're all enraged. What are they so angry about? <laughs> so there was a lot of that. And so very early on, like I think within four months of doing the Press for White Teeth, I just realised I didn't want any of it. Mm. So, But that was great. It was such a great lesson. For 20 years, I've, if, if someone's emailed me and says, do you want to be on TV? It's so easy. Just no, I never want to be on TV. I never want to present a show. I never want to guest edit a magazine. I don't want to go on your... I don't want to do any of it. I saw with great clarity, all I want to do is write books, full stop, and maybe teach. And then when the books come out, I under, I comprehend I will have to go on the road a little bit and then it'll be over and I'll go straight back to my desk. One of the things that a lot of that early stuff, and I've noticed even recently when people write profiles of you, your physical appearance is always discussed as well. You know, you're always described as beautiful or exotic or, you know... These... I knew there was a lot of that. I mean, that was really weird for my friends and my school friends because what I'd been famous for as a kid was being ugly. Yeah. So I'd spent my entire life buck-toothed, hairy, I was very big, bottle-top glasses, monobrow, you know, everything. I was ugly. But, yeah, so it's interesting, right? So I was in my 20s and suddenly my face, for whatever reason, was no longer offensive to people as it had been my entire childhood and adolescence. It, it was interesting. And so then after all that time, I've studied so hard. And I, two things I heard over and over again, if I was at a book party and talking to a young man, they were all quite angry with me. And they'd say two things. One, you only got to university. They say to my face, you only got to university because of uh, affirmative, some kind of imagined affirmative action, which, by the way, doesn't exist in England, but sure. And then the second uh, because the way you look. So it was like, okay, <laughs> okay. You, you find yourself in a way, no matter how hard you work, it must have been some kind of trick. Mm. And then the amazing like metaphysical irony, it's, it's your face, the same face that for all the previous years had meant that no one came near me. Suddenly my face was my great advantage. Um, I don't know. I, I, I can't. That, that's just one of those weird things that happens. I think it happens to lots of women. Mm. At different points in your life, suddenly the mirror, that's what that fairy tale is about, Snow White, says yes. But then, of course, very soon the mirror says no again. We're all going to be old. I am becoming old. Uh, but I I don't know. I, I Having come from a place where the mirror said no, I, I, I won't be so surprised to go back there. <laughs> It'll be fine. <laughs> At around this time as well, you met um, the man that became your husband. Yes. How did that come about? Um, we were very, well. We met when we were eighteen, actually, um, and he was the first person to publish something of mine. 
Um, I met him at the little book launch at Cambridge for this university press that he'd chosen my story. Um, he had won the University Creative Writing Prize across Cambridge. Nick won it, and I did not win it. And I was like, who is this person who won this prize? <laughs> um, and we just became best friends for a very long time. We were friends for almost a decade before we started going out. What caused the transition? Uh, <laughs> I always, I mean, I always liked him. He just didn't, wasn't interested in me <laughs> um, for years and years and years and years. Um, and he, he had his own life and, of course, partners and, and I had my own life. And we just became very good friends. Oh, that sounds torturous. Yeah, though. it was a little torturous. It was a little torturous. It was a long, it was a long story. But um, I can imagine the diary entries yeah, over that decade. It, it was all, but it's always a very, very intense friendship. And um, I can see, like, if you're on the outside of us, perhaps we have nothing in common. But in fact, our backgrounds, there's something very similar in it. He is also from working people who aspired upwards. His his life was more, in some ways, more comfortable financially, but there were no books. I mean, Nick would say himself, there were no real books in Nick's house, some kind of trashy paperbacks. He discovered Heaney himself as a young kid, and that became his mm. world. And he, he read over... Seamus Heaney. Yeah, he read the way I read as kind of way of survival. And he was born into a, a civil war and in Northern Ireland. And as the minority in that situation, right? So as Northern Irish Protestant, which is, I think, the definition of a border existence. Mm. It has no sympathy, public sympathy as a position. It has no identity, really. It's this strange hinterland place. So even though uh, our hinterlands are different, we both recognize hinterland <laughs> as a place. Um, and, yeah, that's it. I mean, we've been married 15 years and... Uh, he is, I would not be here today if he wasn't at home right now with the kids. Mm. Um, he is an incredible source of support and inspiration and constant argument and debate. And I hope I hope that's true the other way around. I, we try and share the work. Sometimes a lot more work falls to him. You mean domestic work? Yeah, that's not easy. And um, it's, not, it's not always easy. Do you engage with each other's work like like when you're writing something does he read it and feedback when he, he has written something the do most you read important it? yeah mm. editor of my work because he's very um you know he doesn't he, he doesn't let anything get away we have a lot of arguments about what i write and and i what think are the arguments about what does he what he's does he a lawyer he trained as a lawyer and so his argument his head is like it's so logical and so fierce the way he argues. And I think if my essays are well argued, it's because I write them first draft, I give it to him and he's like, well, that there's this bit is just sentiment. It's not actually, it doesn't make sense. Or you're saying this, but it's not actually true. Try, so I'm constantly in a debate and it's infuriating to have that conversation with him when I think I've written something pretty good. <laughs> but but it's, he's right, you know, he's mm -hmm. often right. And vice versa, like I can't, his best editors are other poets. But still, I, I know things, and if I'm looking through his poems, I can say, that doesn't sound right to me. There's a lot of back and forth. You know, the, the main thing is that we don't agree. Like, it's interesting right now where so many people don't agree all the time. The question is not that you have to agree. It's how you manage the disagreement. What are the things you don't agree about? Almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> like Politics, politically? culture, mm. political. We, well, he grew up in a kind of, it's a small-c conservatism but also 
a lot of the political arguments of my childhood did not engage Northern Irish Protestants because they had to be their own worries, right? So Thatcher to them was not Thatcher to me because they're thinking about a completely different set of uh, debates, life and death issues in their country where people are being murdered. I think that lesson, when you come together with someone and you think you've lived through the same period of history and you have in terms of time, but not in terms of emotional experience and of comprehension of that history. Different subjectivities. So when we first married, constant battles, like when I realised that, you know, Thatcher in the Northern Irish context means only a block to the IRA or it's like, but but you don't understand. And he's like, well, you don't understand. The truth is that th both those things are true. So it's a constant exercise in learning that your reality is not somebody else's reality, but it is possible to have these even quite, you know, torturous ideological arguments, even within a marriage and come out intact. You know, mm. it's not easy. I imagine it's much, much easier to be married to someone in which you're from exactly the same place. You agree about everything. And, but I guess I'm suspicious of that kind of comfort. I think you can get lazy in a, in a very serious way. There's a kind of narcissism of opinion. Like we can have different opinions. What does your opinion really matter in the practical enactment of your life? Like if he has a different opinion from me, I can get enraged by it, but it doesn't matter. What really matters is things like that. How do we think about raising children? In that sense, we're almost of one mind. So, you know, no, nobody's marriage is easy, but I, but ours has been, you know, if you take it out of the happy, sad category and think more about meaning, it's been very meaningful. You're a professor now at, at NYU. Mm, yes. um, there's a lot that gets written at the moment about campus culture, particularly in the United States, and it tends to centre on issues like no platforming and cancel culture. Mm. Is that something you observe? Uh, not in my classroom, but I think because my classroom is, is a historical class and it's about the development of the novel and the kind of cancel. I mean, of course, they could cancel any number of writers in my Kafka, Baldwin, Morrison. All of them are out of step with the present moment. But because it's a historical class, I try and say to my students, you know, you guys are right about everything, but let's look back at when people were wrong. <laughs> I let them feel that mm, way. I let them mm. feel superior. I just let mm, them do it sure. in order that I can teach them these books so they can understand them. Um, you wrote a story for The New Yorker a little while ago called Now More Than Ever, yeah. which is sort of a funny story in which um, a professor gets cancelled, sort of. Sort of, yes. Um, what were you wanting to kind of comment on with that? I was thinking about um, the logic of arguments at length. It, it was inspired by a situation I had. I went to the new school and with a group of students and they were talking about the conversation began about um, prisons. They'd, they'd recently read Rachel Kushner's book and they were animated as I was by the idea that prison shouldn't exist. Prison mm. is a kind of outrage. And it was a very interesting conversation and and we agreed um, and we talked about it for a while and then the conversation moved on and they were considering someone who had done something wrong and immediately uh, they all said, but that person should go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And I was very interested in the idea that um, something about the space that you have, like everyone's mentioned the 140 characters or however long it is now. But the key ma matter of that is that there is not space to pursue an argument 
logically to its conclusion. And I, what you find often is parallel ideas that if you actually did pursue them to the conclusion, result in absurdity. That's what was, that was the inspiration of that story. Right. And I thought about prison and these kids, and then I thought about Christian philosophy, which, whatever else they think about it, is the animating, originating myth behind American Protestant culture, in which suddenly in that context, Jesus seems incredibly radical, who says mercy to everyone, no matter how much, whatever you have, give even that away. He seems like this radical Marxist. Mm. So I was trying to put these ideas together and ask people to follow them all the way through. What is what is the crime? What is the sin? I mean, my mother was a social worker, so I was always at that pinpoint of absurdity where, for instance, in the case of child abuse, her daily work was to know that this child abuser 15 years ago was an abused child. That's what a social worker has to deal with day and night. What do you call that problem? It's called the problem of not either or, of either and, mm -hmm. or, or and. You have to accept two things as simultaneously true. And one of the things about 140 characters is it almost never allows for that thought. But in order to be an adult person in the world, in order to deal with human reality, you have to accept mm -hmm. this child abuser was brutally abused as a child. It is not an excuse. It's not a consequential argument. These two facts exist simultaneously in the world. And if social workers who are not philosophers can contain these two ideas, then perhaps some of the rest of us can also. To me, that kind of ability is not weakness. It's not false compassion. It's not phony liberalism. It's reality. The two things are true. That story is about that. It's interesting about social media and the way that these arguments become sort of single tone. It's really about self-definition. It's very rarely about the matter in hand. All that's being done there is a performance of, I am this kind of person. Mm, mm. These are the kind of opinions I have. And that means I am whatever, good, attractive, interesting. We are in an emergency situation. Talk to me about practical political utility. Don't talk to me about what kind of a person you are. I don't care. Mm. So you don't use social media and you've said it's because you don't have time. It, it's a cost-benefit analysis for me. There are many things I absolutely miss, not least of which is the fun. But in, in terms of taking the temperature of a moment, you can resist it a little bit. I am aware of what's going on. I have a laptop. I don't think I'm enormously out of touch. I certainly don't follow every meme and sometimes algorithmic articles will appear in the newspaper so sure that everyone knows what they're talking about. And I'm like, no, I missed that one. Mm. Sorry, I don't know entirely what TikTok is. And I, I can catch up. I don't think anybody over 25 <laughs> knows what TikTok is. But the question is, how much time is the right amount of time to invest in keeping up with that eternal present? The interesting thing about this eternal present is that it's also in a way, you know, with things like TikTok or, or whatever, it is kind of youthful as well, right? right? You know, so so this idea that as you um, get older, you're out of touch. And this is this is a criticism that gets levelled at you when yeah. particularly your relationship or lack of with social media is... I'm totally out of touch. Is being discussed. Are you ever allowed to be out of touch? Is there a moment where you you don't have to submit to the moment? There, are, there are, It's not the only reality. Mm. There is also the reality of natural time, of time, non-internet time. That is also real. The thing about this kind of, it's not the technology, but the capital behind it is its whole mission is to make you feel that this life has never been any different. This is the only reality, that what happened before 2008 is irrelevant. 
I, I cannot concede to that argument because it's, it's the argument of capital and it's not true. Do you feel old? Yes, but I don't. Why is that a terrible thing? I do feel old and, and I am um, and completely out of touch in that sense. But I also know you must know, too. Uh, the world is transformed, but some things have not transformed that these the youngest people, death still waits for them. Biology still waits for them. Age still waits for them. And the fundamental um, compromises of life still wait for them. And I, I am so interested to see this generation age. I, I want to see how, how you age within an algorithm. How does it work? The disappointing parts of life in a medium which doesn't allow for them. Some of it will be fascinating. Like it, this is the first time in history that you'll be able to see pictures of your grandma in her bikini doing body shorts. <laughs> in a bit, that's just amazing. How much? How is that going to change families when you, you have a constant access to every like social media moment of your grandma? Right. Everything she ever did when she was doing the butt shot and the underboob. Like, whoa, <laughs> Gran, you were you were happening in 2019. Unless, unless you know, our grandchildren are going to be incredibly puritanical, and the the internet will be will be cancelled itself. Right. Yeah, of, that could happen. Um, you've written, and I and I quote um, that you're realistic about the limitations of time. I guess there are a couple of ways that you can think about the time that we have left. You know, um, at 44. There's sort of one school that says, you know, you work hard, you achieve, you make your mark, or you sit back and relax and spend the last sort of, you know, few decades doing what could also be considered important, which is, you know, gentle time with your family. I know that that is a binary, but there, there feels like there is a bit of an, uh, an either-or argument. What, what do you think both of that sort of dichotomy and where do you think you fall in that? I know I'm I I know that um the the personal is more important to me. It's it's selfish on my part but I I don't want to pass on pain. Like I I think there uh you know under that argument mothers mothering non-working mothers throughout history have done nothing. But I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I believe they've made people and if you make people who are incapable of creating too much misery in the world that is fundamentally political and a triumph. And that's really not very easy to do. Um, so that that remains uh, my act, main action in the world. The writing, it's done selfishly. It's done for me. I can't pretend to be an activist. or it's, it's, I did it for me. I, I did it to make my life clear to myself. So it, I've lived selfishly. That's, there's no way out of that. I come from a long line of narcissists and I would like to overcome it. You feel like it's in you and you're struggling with it. Yes, I would like to overcome it. That's the only achievement I would like to get to. Not always have to work, to sometimes not work. I would like to not always be thinking of making things, but instead of doing things for others. I was with a friend of mine yesterday, Nicole. Her life is about her relations to others. Her appreciation of other people are about their relations. So when I asked about what she loved about her partner, she said, he's kind. Mm. And uh, to understand that what really matters is relation is is a kind of genius of living. And some people have a, have a gift for it, and some people won't know it even the day they die. I, I would I would like to be more like that. That would be great. <laughs> well, Zadie Smith, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank, <laughs> Thank you so you. much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 
And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.